and welcome to Narratives of Purpose. You are now tuned into a new episode showcasing unique stories of changemakers, of people who are contributing to make a difference in society. This show was created to amplify social impact by sharing individual journeys of ordinary people who I believe are making extraordinary impact within their communities and around the world. My name is Claire Morigande. I am your host on this podcast. And if you want to be inspired to take action, then look no further. You are in the right place. Get comfortable and listen into my conversations. My guest on the show today is Bart DeVita. Bart is an award-winning social entrepreneur, a keynote speaker. He is also an artificial intelligence and sustainability strategist. In fact, you can narrow it down to say that he is a leading expert in digital transformation for healthcare in Europe. Bart is the founder and CEO of the Hippo AI Foundation, an organization that focuses on creating data and AI commons for digital ecosystem. The foundation facilitates and supports communities to accelerate the open source development of medical artificial intelligence. Now, this might sound somewhat complicated, but trust me, this is a fascinating, a timely and quite important topic to address, and Bart is the right person to speak to about it. So, as you can tell, we will have a lot to unpack. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. And for this episode, to reach even more people, I invite you to take a moment and share your feedback by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Good Pods. This will help other listeners find our show and further amplify the stories we bring on Narratives of Purpose. All right, now let's dive into the discussion with Bart. So, hello, Bart. Welcome to the Narratives of Purpose. How are you doing today? I'm quite well. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for having me. Before we start going into introductions, that's what I usually do. I want to pick your brains immediately and kick off with one burning question, because I want to make sure that all our listeners have the same understanding of about what we're going to be speaking about, and that is artificial intelligence. So you are the founder of a foundation called Hippo AI. And if I would sum it up in just a short words, uh, basically your goal is to make medical artificial intelligence a common good. So, Bart, give us a comprehensive definition of artificial intelligence. What is AI? That's the, the question everybody gets asked and everybody gives a different answer. Uh, for me, um, AI is a, 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 a box or a, a tool set of technologies uh, that um, enable people to a uh, discover insights uh, that are embedded within large data sets, and uh, b um, gives us the ability to scale um, uh, that insight in, in every corner of this planet because it becomes replicable or it becomes in, in that sense. So, uh, to make it more concrete in healthcare, it will allow us to um, accelerate medical discoveries and uh, it will allow us to scale. Uh, that knowledge that is created in each corner of this planet, if you do it right. So it's quite an exciting technology or a bunch of technologies. Um, there is no single definition of AI in that sense. Um, it has definitely nothing to do with mimicking the brain or creating a, a, a brain-like um, a computer. It is more about mim mimicking intelligence or um, human decision-making in a sense. We humans are actually um, also 
pattern recognition machines. A lot of our behavior and decision-making is based on intuition, and intuition is also a form of pattern recognition. So at this stage, AI is more dwelling in, in that historical data of our decisions that we have made to re replicate these sort of uh, decision-making. And, and in healthcare, this is about recognizing patterns in uh, histopathologic images or in um, radiology images or CT scans. But it's also about trying to understand perhaps the language of life, which is encoded in four different letters, um, ACTG, um, and, and which is a, a mysterious language still. But I think machine learning will allow us to uh, decrypt that language and accelerate discoveries in that sense. Um, and that's what you see happening as well in the uh, field of research. So it can be used in, in very different ways and forms. And it's also what people underestimate. Um, it's one of the fastest um, accelerating technologies I've seen in capacity and um, performance. Let's rewind a bit and tell me more about yourself. You know, who is Bart and especially why did you create this foundation? What is the origin story behind that? I grew up in a quite isolated region uh, close to Antwerp in Belgium. Um, my parents didn't want to live in the city, so um, I was um, quite isolated in my childhood as well because we didn't have that much neighbors to play with. But my father was an, uh, an engineer and he gave me access to computers uh, much sooner than any of my friends. So um, as a child, I was, I was uh, programming and I was playing, I was uh, gaming, um, and games were some sort of intelligence. It was my virtual friend to play with. I was quite fascinated by the ability to create things, and, and I saw also the progress at that time that suddenly I had access to technologies that normally you only had access to in, in banks, but as technology was democratizing, um, I suddenly had access. And That was the first thing. I, I wrote a paper in 89 at high school about artificial intelligence uh, because um, my uncle was building expert systems in banks. Um, and I got a really bad note on that because my teacher didn't understand anything what I've written there. But I've written one sentence, which I'm really proud of. I wrote at the time that AI will give um, African doctors the ability to get the same expert level diagnostics as European. And that was in 1989, when I was uh, 18 years old, <laughs> um, that was kind of the beginning. But then I didn't study computer sciences because they told me at school I was too creative and I had to do something with my hands. So I studied uh, dental medicine. <laughs> But it was the most boring thing I ever could imagine doing in my life, is sitting in a room and having patients you can't even not talk to. Um, I finished that studies and I moved then to um, sports science because I was quite active in that sense as well. And that's how I kind of ended in a weird um, a trajectory in Switzerland, working for the Swiss Olympic Institute in Macklinger. Um, and, and I was in um, 696. And then I was also, again, isolated there. And then there was the internet. And I started to discover the, the internet as one of the early adopters. And I had access to Medline, which was at that time the database online to get uh, access to papers. And I finally was empowered in having discussions with orthopedic surgeons and others. And I was much more empowered because I had access to information they didn't have access to. And then I suddenly understood the power of computer technologies combined with the internet. And I was hoping that this would lead to a 
a really democratization of knowledge. And, and that's where I decided to leave then everything what I studied for. I moved then to SAP, which is the most weirdest thing you, you probably could imagine to do, working for an accounting software company. And then I went in this whole career of being a consultant, implementing these systems in large hospitals, um, understanding the logistics, supply chains, billing clinical information systems like I know a hospital inside out through that. And then I did uh, project management. I became a product manager and went on in my career, uh, becoming a regional leader, uh, working for IBM later, um, and then working more on the strategic side. Um, I was then heading Central Eastern Europe for 26 countries. That's right. I had this immense career in, in big tech. But then I started asking myself, because the since 2010, machine learning, AI, came in fashion again. I was at IBM where that whole hype uh, was uh, generated through Watson. And I started to ask myself the question, what is the purpose of the technology? And I saw the power because I think it was the missing element between the internet, computer technologies, but then you needed AI. And if you have these three elements, you can truly democratize knowledge. And if you do it in the right way, we could make the world so much better. So I started thinking how I could do this. And that's why I decided to leave my career, uh, create a nonprofit. Um, and I had this very naive thought that this nonprofit should be something like a, a mixture of the Linux Foundation, Doctors Without Borders, and the Ocean Cleaner Project. Uh, because I think these purpose-driven um, organizations are growing more and more into fashion. And I also understood that if Doctors Without Borders is able to collect 1.6 billion in donations every single year, it's like if, if somebody can manage to do that at scale and you can collect that same amount of money to create data and license it as open, um, open accessible, available data, that you probably could change so much as I never would be able to do so in any job. I started that mission uh, with a lot of naivety, I said, but you, you always have to do that. You cannot think too much upfront about everything that's going to happen. You just have to start doing it. And that's what I started doing. And the name itself, Hippo, um, I, I, I did do a lot of research and started reading about the history of open knowledge and open access. Um, came from Hippocrates um, in ancient Greece, the godfather of the ethical foundation for medicine. So in his original oath, Hippocrates, he mentioned that physicians always needed to share their knowledge for free uh, without economic interest with their peers. It was not open knowledge. It was only accessible for their peers, which were physicians, but it was de-economized. And I wanted to have that same principle um, on data and AI to say, like, let's make that free. Let's make that available. So everybody can still build products for free without being dependent from any big tech platform. And coming back to machine learning, my understanding is that, you know, we are dealing with huge amounts of data, right? And whatever tool we develop, it needs to be trained. And that's where machine learning comes in. Is that correct? Yes and no. Like it can also train itself. There are different ways of learning. There's like what we call supervised learning is, is, is like when you would have a kid next to you that reads a book and starts to look at elephants and you would as a parent say, that's an elephant. And you would repeat it quite a lot of times. So the kid knows that over time, that's an elephant. Uh, the unsupervised way would be 
that the kid reads that book the whole time and starts recognizing that there are different elephants in there and starts clustering them in a group, doesn't know what they are called, but he knows that they have similarities. And um, and if you then give the kid the data that uh, this is um, an elephant, or you start training it and, and it learns that if it says these are tigers, it's wrong, that over time, um, the kid will then learn by itself that the, these are elephants without supervision. That's just one element of um, machine learning. There are now very different ways of learning something that is very similar to human behavior, where you get rewards if you make the right decision. So that's um, what we normally uh, do when we create habits. We have a trigger that's something that creates an action, and 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 then you get a reward. This is a bit like how um, some of the machine learning models work. Uh, they try X combinations, and when they are correct, they, they are rewarded and, and learn out of that reward. Um, the trend is really more and more to less supervised and, and more unsupervised as the technology is getting more performance. Um, and um, now there is something called um, zero-shot learning, where you just need to train your model once, and it really understands, for example, human language in a way that you didn't have to teach any concept, didn't have to teach what a, a tiger is. And it starts to understand the concepts of language and um, can do all sorts of things. And and that's human language, but you can do that the same thing on biological language and where you see these same technologies uh, being applied to our genetic code or um, the four letters that I mentioned before, where we start using and applying them in, in that field. Can you give us some examples, whether you have been actively involved or do you know of, that you think are, are worth mentioning here for our audience to understand how this is evolving and how this is also influencing healthcare at this point? Yes, and I, I want to take a step back to let people understand what, what why it's more powerful as human decision-making. Uh, I used to give during my, my talks an example of a, a research uh, experiment um, where they trained pigeons to become uh, histopathologists. Um, and uh, they gave these pigeons uh, images of breast cancer, histopathologic images. And uh, when they selected the right images and telling this is a, a cancerous samples, they got rewarded with food. But as uh, these pigeons um, seem a, a much wider array of light, and human, the human eye is limited in the amount of colors we see. So they can receive and detect more patterns which led them to the case that these pigeons became better in recognizing patterns as humans. And it just shows that um, these, these pattern recognition uh, techniques are, are not unique to a machine or to humans. Um, they are everywhere in nature. And that when you have sensors and um, uh, the ability to see and go beyond what the, the humans' um, ability or humans' ability have, then you will be able to detect um, these patterns much better. If you look at uh, physicians, how they make decisions, that we think that every decision makes the same decision, which is not the case. I used to make this joke that half of the physicians are worse than the average, which is just a normal Gaussian distribution. So to put it into practice, I had somebody in my family who had leukemia or diagnosed, and I said, like, please go to that friend of mine who is the leader uh, in leukemia diagnostics in Germany because he does 60% of our diagnosis in Germany. And he has a, a reference lab where everything is standardized and he does um, uh, how much, is it now like 80,000 80, diagnoses a year in leukemia, which is a lot. 
And my, my family member, which was extended family member, was at a hospital that only had 20 leukemia cases a year. Um, and what actually happened is that he probably, we don't know, got wrongly diagnosed and he died just a few months later. Um, and, and this is the case, like in, in some areas, you need a really precise diagnosis because there are therapies. And if your physician doesn't recognize these patterns or, or hasn't that experience, he will take worse decisions. And so the, the question is here, how do we take that data of the best experts and the best decisions and use that data as a, a training layer for machine learning and give them every single doctor, also those with less experience, that same ability. And if you do that, you, you, you flatten down that Gaussian curve and then all physicians be, will be average in that sense, because the average will be the best. And I think that is kind of very promising that you start augmenting intelligence with the best knowledge that is out there. And now to give more practical examples, you can do that in um, imaging is quite easy. Why we do this imaging? Because you can anonymize data quite well, and you can thereby access data quite well. But it can be used in every domain in healthcare. It, it is used even now for finding so-called biomarkers, which are predictors that are data points where that helps us to predict uh, something. And now they are using this um, with, for example, voice. Um, they, I, I don't know, people probably heard that there were algorithms out there that could recognize um, uh, if you had COVID or not uh, based on your voice um, and, and the sound. And you can also use this. You have biomarkers that pre-detect an onset of Parkinson or specific uh, neurogenerative diseases that influence your motor control of your voice. So you can, there is definitely a pattern that we humans cannot recognize that these um, algorithms start to recognize. So it becomes a tool that allows us to combine phenotyping, like the physical uh, parts that we can detect out of a patient uh, together with the genetic data, uh, the genotype data, um, and, and allow us to make much more accurate um, diagnostics. Um, and thereby, by knowing this subclassification, find better therapies that fit to that much more precise diagnosis. So basically, it helps us connect what we see and what we cannot see to make sure that we can make the right decisions and the right informed decision, right? An example that I had when I was working in Africa, we were building um, cancer registries in sub-Saharan Africa. That was at least the ID. I was sent there by IBM to, to build it, and I started to discover, okay, when you build the cancer register, you first need pathologists. But there are no pathologists in this country. I flew to India because I was an, um, a physician that has built a cancer register with very low cost um, and also not having access to pathologists, but he used a, a very old way of detecting HPV, like old, a very a different way to detect HPV infections by using a kitchen acid and, and, and applying this to the cervix and then using a coloscope to look at colorization. And he trained nurses and he showed me a book of thousand images that he used to train his nurses. And it's like, these images, are they free? And I say, yes. Um, so we, I, I, together with a startup in Israel, actually they did then the work, but I initiated um, a part of that work. We used these images to create an, an AI that um, could be uh, used on a smartphone. And then we 3D printed uh, a coloscope that was attached to the smartphone with a tenfold visual magnification. 
And uh, we started taking pictures of the cervix and matching that, of course, with pap smear. So you need to always have a correlated with, with ground truth. And then we could, um, uh, five years later, that, that startup published actually a paper that the visual um, uh, way of detecting HPV became much more accurate as the pep smear. And, and that was where I had an eye opener. I said like, whoa, this is so powerful. I came to Africa. There was no pathologist, but we don't need the pathologist because we have suddenly access to this tool, which is a handle form, which automatically generates the register data um, and and everything is digitized the only bad part of that story is that then that startup got some investors on board that then said like after they published that paper well that's not interesting doing this in africa if you can have such a high accuracy we're going to focus on the us because that's where we're going to generate the most profit so they defocused and then the investors pushed them to go to high income countries and that's where i started to learn that if you do this, you need to liberate the AI from economics. This is a fascinating example where you connected one country in, in Africa, you connected India, you connected Israel, and you came up with a solution. So this shows the collaboration. And again, as you were mentioning, the open access. So what is your foundation or your platform exactly creating? Are you basing your work on this kind of collaboration? Can you expand a bit more? The, the first years, as I said, there was a lot of naivety, so there was also a lot of learnings um, involved. Um, so I, I, I wrote down, I analyzed, and I wrote down 75 hypotheses that I said, like, I'm going to test them all in the next uh, few years. I gave myself time. I, I have the luxury that while I, I started following this pattern, I was more and more starting to get invited to speak about it. And I was able to finance my life just by speaking about it. So it gives you a lot of freedom to start focusing on your actual work. Um, and one of the things that I learned, and there was um, COVID came along when I started, and I started to sh shift from AI and open source to using these open source principles and 3D printing, because during COVID, we all had a need for medical supplies. And um, we started with a friend of mine in Berkeley, uh, a Facebook group that focused on uh, bringing people together to create an open source ventilator. Uh, we, everybody said, like, how can you build a ventilator open source? Like, well, the power of open collaboration is, is unimaginable. So like, let's try this. And eight weeks um, later, we had a group of 80,000 people globally that started to do all sorts of other things. And that whole group, there are research papers out there that whole group, just altruistically, no economic incentives involved, uh, created eight weeks after we launched that Facebook group, created uh, one million of products 3D printed a week. Um, and this was not a ventilator. These were face sheet masks. These were tubes. These were things that people needed. But it showed the power of massive open collaboration. And the reason why we did this is because we had a joint enemy. And having a joint enemy accelerates everything. So that was kind of very learningful for me to say, like, how I, do I replicate it with HIPAA? What is the enemy? And the enemy that I shows is inequalities, because it can affect everyone. If, if people think in Western Europe they are free of health inequalities, well, if everything goes wrong, wait just a few years or 10 years, and it's already happening now with drugs that cost $2.1 million for a, a gene therapy for, for children, where Mothers in Belgium, where I come from, start doing crowdfunding campaigns and not knowing if their child will survive, although the 
drug is available. Um, that's inequality, and that's the kind of inequality I think we can we can fight together. And I believe we need to shift that model from scarcity to a, a model of abundance, and then shift economical value on experience, which means that those who create a, a better brand or a better experience are allowed to ask more, become more profitable, but the substance that saves your life is still available for everyone. My next question would be, you know, how far are you in that endeavor? How do you find partners and how do you bring your story to a more larger audience and especially to decision makers? Tell me more about that. It's a good question because it's it's difficult. And like I thought it was going to be easier, but like people don't understand AI. They, they think it's a Terminator. Like there's a lot of abstractism in here. My mother even had breast cancer during that period and She did not understand my first breast cancer project and she didn't support it as a person coming out with it. So even I was not able to even tell her the importance of, of that um, uh, um, a part that we need open knowledge. So um, spreading that um, is difficult. Um, I am also, that's why I started writing that newsletter, uh, which went really well. I started beginning this year and I have 15,000 subscribers after just um, um, like not even a year. The most difficult part is funding. Um, when you set up a nonprofit, I learned that most NGOs, if they own an agenda, I thought this would be something for Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But then I learned that they work very close with corporates and close knowledge. And um, you, you just feel that you are doing something very new. And, and if you're doing something very new that nobody knows if it's going to work, then this is difficult. That's pioneer work. But um, I managed, for example, to win AstraZeneca for the first project, which was one of my targets. Can I convince a big pharma company to invest in open source and, 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 and to give data for a project? And everybody who knows big pharma is like, okay, no, never, ever, is go, you, you're going to get that. And they made a, a global announcement that they were partnering with us on breast cancer. They stood for open source. If you look at Their website, they are pushing a lot for open um, um, data and open source. So I think you can change a lot if you change the mindset of a few people and then make these few people excited to as well change others. But it's a it's it's a long, long, like grassrooted um, a movement on, on your part of um, politicians and, and having uh, support. I, I tried this a lot. I lost so much time. Um, I learned that is uh, open source is not uh, a popular because it doesn't bring any tax revenue. And if you don't bring tax revenue, you're not interesting. Um, I, I started to learn that a lot of politicians I talk to um, don't understand that concept. If you open certain things, like if you would open source AI, I believe that we would even have a bigger economy. It's like kind of similar when you would make an analogy to uh, Gutenberg. And if Gutenberg would have... Um, licensed every single printed letter and every time you would have written a book you had to pay two uh, thousand times the letter a three uh, thousand times the letter b and you had to pay licenses because somebody thought it was a good business model because everybody who writes a book needs to pay for licenses um everybody knows that this model would never created all the publishers the the enlightenment and it would never progress society so sometimes you need to give access to tools like a, a the public library that gave us access to books so people could educate them for free. If AI is the tool that um, uh, creates knowledge and serves knowledge, 
then these tools need to be accessible to everyone. And and so from a political perspective, it's it's hard. I worked with the commission. I tried to push for Europe to say, like, let's put open source AI as a standard in our European healthcare systems. Because if we do so, we, we get a principle of solidarity in our systems, in our digital systems. So we can reinvent our solidaric analog systems in a digital way. So we can do that what Europe has been doing really well, is serving everyone uh, for quite low cost in, compared uh, to the US, for example. As a last part, we are now starting to build a for-profit platform that um, will give tools to all those who want to build into the open. So we want to understand what, what are they looking for, what is, are their needs. Uh, I don't know how the business model will look like, but that, that's not important. I think if you are able to get a community of, for example, 100,000 people together on a platform, you will find ways to create new services that they find valuable, they will pay for. But I want to make it as free as possible. So uh, the principle AI will always be open and accessible and, and, and data as much, open and accessible. And, and we start with search. Like We want to make everything what is already out there um, accessible. Now, coming back to something you mentioned before, I'd like you to speak more about data protection and regulation. Obviously, every country is different. What are the barriers at this point that might not enable you to go about achieving your mission, so to speak? There are different sorts of data. There is like data that is personal data, then there is data that is abstracted from existing personal data. So data is, is, is as multi-dimensions. I've been in healthcare since 20 years, and, and we, we, we have tried to build, Germany is, is, is a, um, trying to build since 18 years, uh, a shared electronic health record, and, and it doesn't happen. And, and this is because people don't want to share it in the system. So I started looking at that whole data sharing from a game theory perspective. And if you do this, you, you start to understand why people don't share, because there, there is value for them. And if if you apply the prisoner dilemma of the game theory, that means that if the one who shares um, uh, loses uh, and the one who doesn't share get benefits, nobody will start sharing. So you could ask that question, if a physician would share his patient data in a shared electronic health record, but then the people who are implementing that record message, yeah, we want to reduce the double uh, amount of diagnostic tests. Then the physician says, like, why should I then share if you're going to punish me that I cannot do and perform a, a different test? Like, like these are not the, the incentives that, that um, you should communicate about. You should communicate about what is it going to bring for all of us. And then perhaps you need them to create an eco ecosystem that has a certain set of values, norms, and principles that are all based on sharing. So everybody who is in that um, group shares. Um, and and that's the thing, but I think not a lot of cultures or countries have achieved this system where you have that collective, um, which is a closed ecosystem. So you don't have the risk of somebody only unilateral profiting from this. And um, how do you create um, such um, a system in a way that we all benefit? And I think you need to set and apply rules for doing so. The rule that I took is um, data cannot have any, any economic value. And then the extractions of data should lead to open knowledge. And if you do these two things, you completely like Hippocrates, the economized knowledge, 
And if you de-economize it within a closed system, people will start sharing because we all benefit from it. So from a game theory perspective, um, this is the only way to do this. Um, otherwise, you will always have winners and losers. It's like we all gave our data to Facebook and suddenly they can use the data um, to create algorithms that make us addictive um, um, to their platform. So they are using that information against us, creating information asymmetries and power asymmetries. So we have no control anymore. And I think people understand that. And that's why there is no sharing because they are afraid that there will be an extraction of value or um, an appropriation that is going to be used against them um, and, and as an asymmetry of power. And you can have that from a societal and private industry perspective. You can do this from a Western um, um, African perspective. So there was, for example, big tech companies in Silicon Valley going to Africa and telling they are doing good and extracting the data um, as there is no data protection there. And these countries are happy that they get services and they have access to healthcare, but um, these companies are doing exactly the same as in colonial times. They are extracting the value, which is data, out of the countries. And uh, a friend of mine, Professor Nicole Reeve from the London School of Economics, calls, calls this data colonialism. Um, and, and he says, like, this is repeating in a, a neo-colonial way that what we always have been doing. Like, we tell we're doing good, but we're extracting. And I don't think, um, as long as we look at data in healthcare as something that is extractable for economic value and creates asymmetries because knowledge is protected by IP and, and not shared, then we will never see an accelerator as fast and we will never see this uh, all these benefits that, that data could give and machine learning could give. So it's a bit of, a, I didn't think an answer, it, it's super complex. Um, and I'm a totally privacy advocate. Um, um, because I think data, yes, can be shared, but needs to anonymize. Um, I've um, I've seen too much in, in in sense of data brokers selling certain sets of data. Um, but I I do think that instead of always talking about data protection, we should start talking more about anti-discrimination laws. Because um, um, if you can detect mental diseases based on just phenotype data from a voice. And somebody could listen in our conversation now, take an algorithm and tell, well, Bart has a 60% um, risk of getting a depression based on his voice. So, and, and if these algorithms are getting better, I need to be protected uh, by anti-discrimination laws. And I think that we, we should shift that discussion more about how do we protect against that power asymmetry that people that will uh, be confronted with. And how do we protect our rights? Because we all becoming similar to a, a child with Down syndrome who is very visible um, and has a Down syndrome. There are quite a lot of anti-discrimination laws. You can um, um, not discriminate these people, but I think we all becoming some sort of uh, classified uh, uh, person that has deficits in certain areas. But then we need, we, we, we cannot classify people, humans, based on what an algorithm tells you. And I think it's important to mention that and to speak about anti-discrimination and bring that more to the forefront. So then my question would be, how do you see this now evolving? Do you see that it's too early, that people don't really take that into account? Or do you see that here and there, some voices are getting out there and making people more aware of that? 
I think the majority is still trying to gain um, out of the uh, symmetries they can um, conquer. I, um, I'm not a huge fan of the word equity in a sense. I'm more in in a certain sense the more the the, the equality, giving everybody's um, access to it because equity can be used in a in a very colonial way. We need as we digitize there is this the concept of common goods like the, the commons. There is always more and more data. Data cannot be overused. So I think we, we what we need to do is is start moving towards finding people together that create commons. And you don't need the whole world population to to do that. You you need people who are building commons. And once you have a common, nobody can take it away. Like it's 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 a good that is there. So once you have a common database on breast cancer data, it's going to be there for everyone to use. The more commons we will have, the more we start to build up a healthcare system that um, where we have a a common layer of shared knowledge that is digital, which are digital artifacts. And these artifacts can be software code, can be um, AI models, can be data, whatever. But the more we collectively build, the more easier it becomes. And I think in 10 years, this will look very differently. You will see much more tools being openly accessible. Just to conclude, I'd like to ask a couple of questions to my guest. And one of them is, you know, do you have any specific recommendation for our listeners, be it a book that you think people need absolutely to read about, a movie, whatever, you name it. What would you recommend for our audience today? I think a book that everybody in the tech field should read is The Surveillance Capitalism from a Harvard Business School professor, Shushana Zuboff. It makes you aware of... of um, the asymmetries that already are there. I, I did like the book called The Undoing Project, which was one of my favorite books. Um, it's from um, the same um, author that created Moneyball uh, about uh, the life of Daniel Kahneman, which is uh, the neuroscientist who actually won the Nobel Prize. And it, it, it is written as a, as a non-fiction book, but it's really a beautiful book about human decision-making. Finally, before I let you go, one last question. Do you have anyone that you would recommend I invite on this show? Someone interesting whose story or whose uh, endeavor you would like to listen on the podcast? Well, I, I think um, the concept of data colonialism is a, is a nice concept. So um, I could connect you with Professor Nick Caldry from London School of Economics. Uh, who wrote uh, a book, uh, The Cost of Connection. Thank you so much, Bart. I think I'll let you go. It's been a pleasure and thank you so much for taking the time. I really look forward to staying in touch and to continue to see how Epo AI is evolving. Thank you so much, Claire, for having me and uh, help me to spread uh, the narrative. I would just want to give something like we have all the ability to shape our own future um, and um, it's really important to unite um, and we think what are the values, what is it really what we want to build when we digitize. Digitalization is not a purpose per se, it is a tool. We are creating worlds um, where our children live in and, 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 and we can define ourselves what kind of a world that is. Um, and, and it's not always the world that is promised on stages from large conferences. Sometimes it's, it's the less popular uh, variant that uh, leads to perhaps the most prosperity future of, of all of us. Shifting the healthcare industry towards open technologies, open data and AI standards with the goal of uniting data to defeat inequalities is most certainly a noble mission and quite frankly, a very ambitious one. 
That being said, you need to give it a try. And that's what BART is doing. Have a look at the Hippo AI Foundation website to learn more at hippoai.org. That's H-I-P-P-O-A-I.org. And if you turn out to be as interested as I was, then do subscribe to the Hippogram newsletter at blog.hippoai.org. You will find all these links in the show notes. One final mention to inform you that the Hippo AI Foundation is hosting the first Open Health Data and AI Summit on December 1st, 2022, around the topic of inventing digital solidarity. We'll also link the registration page for you in the show notes. That's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate you taking the time. That was episode 41, a conversation with Bart DeVitz on making medical AI a common good. Remember to share this episode with your network and your friends. If you are enjoying our show, we would also love to get your five-star rating on Spotify. We are always keen on hearing from our audience, so feel free to connect with us through our social handles. You'll find us on Instagram at narrativesofpurpose underscore podcast, on LinkedIn at narrativesofpurposepodcast, and on Twitter at NOP underscore podcast. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well, and stay inspired. This podcast was produced by Tom at Rustic Studios.